All right, let me pray for us, and then we'll, we'll move into this. Let's pray. God, your word is food for famished ones. I pray that you would open the glories of your word, God, the, the glories of Christ in your word, and help us to see this morning. I pray that your word would be like food to us this morning. And God, I pray you'd help us to to eat and rejoice in you. Lord, please help me to to preach your word in the ability that you supply. Lord, I confess that my own ability is useless, vain. But God, if you would allow me to preach your word and the ability you supply, God, you would be so glorified. And God, I pray for every person here that you allow them, you teach them to hear your word, God, <coughs> helped by your Holy Spirit, receiving your word, God, with eagerness and joy. <coughs> Give us clarity. We need your help, God. Let this time bring you glory. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, so, uh, you know, most of you know this. We've been going through, we, we took a break in Mark, so everybody should know that by now. We've been walking through Mark, took a break in Mark, and we started looking at some things about the local church, okay? So we, uh, the first week we did this, we looked at uh, the growth of the local church uh, inwardly, going through Ephesians chapter 4, verse 1 through 16. Second week, we went the growth of the local church outwardly. We just did an overview of Acts. Um, that's kind of the direction that we're heading. And then today, as you see at the top of your study guide, the supremacy I want to talk about. This is my subject, the supremacy of Jesus in the church, the supremacy of Jesus. So let me lay down some terms. The supremacy of Jesus in the church. Supremacy. What does this mean? Here's a definition for supremacy. The state or condition of being superior to all others, superior to all others. This is first in rank, first in importance, supremacy. So I'm saying the supremacy of Jesus. What do I mean of Jesus? I mean Jesus is superior above all others. He's first importance. He's first rank. Jesus, the supremacy of Jesus. And then I said in this title here, in the church. And what do I mean by that? And what I mean by that is we must be a church that esteem Jesus as supreme. Just esteem Him above everything else. Every other avenue. I mean, in our affections, we, we exalt Jesus as supreme. In our obedience, we exalt Him as supreme. In our speech, we talk of Him. People can tell in our speech that we speak of Him. He's supreme. And our teaching, the teaching that goes out in Grace Community Church that Christ Jesus would be supreme. This is what we want to talk about today. This is the subject. The supremacy of Jesus in the church. I want you to think for just a moment. We're going to get to Revelation chapter 1 eventually. And you can go ahead and flip there. Revelation chapter 1. But before we even go there, I just want you to think for a minute about the supremacy of Jesus. The supremacy of Christ in the church. The church exists because of Jesus, right? He created the church physically and spiritually. He created our bodies physically the first time we were born. 
And he creates our he creates the church spiritually. We're born again. This is his creation. Christ is the sustainer of the church. He's the great high priest who intercedes for us continually. He's a sustainer of his church. Christ is the future of the church. You read Revelation, you find many passages of people gathered around King Jesus, gathered around the Lamb that was slain, and they're worshiping Him. He's the focus of eternity. Christ is is who the church wants to be like. We want to be like Him. We're being conformed to His image. And He's the one that we worship. We worship Him. Christ is the Lord, ruler, king of the church. Christ is actually the greatest lover of the church. Remember Ephesians 5? He loved her, the church, and He gave Himself for her. He's the greatest lover of the church. Christ hates and destroys everything that comes against His church. He hates and destroys everything that comes against His church. Remember the picture in Revelation chapter 20? Satan is released and upon his release, he goes and gathers up some nations and they're going after the saints. And in a moment, God pours out fire from heaven and they're all gone. Just like that. He hates and destroys everything that comes against his church. So he is, he just is. He's just supreme in his church. Are you with me on that? He's supreme in his church. Now imagine the great tragedy. The great tragedy of Grace Community Church beginning to give other things supremacy. It'd be a shame, wouldn't it? Grace Community Church began to give other things supremacy outside of Christ. This has happened in the past. If you read the letter to the Galatians, this is what happened. Okay, they began to, to take Christ, they became estranged from Christ. Or the Colossians. He was warning the Colossians about this. He said he, he was warning them not to move away from holding fast to the head. He warned them to hold fast to the head. This has happened in history, and this is still happening today. You see this in things like moralism. What a tragedy of Christ. What a tragedy if this church, instead of Christ being supreme, we just became a group of people that were very moral and upright. But the person of Jesus Christ was not worshipped. The person of Jesus Christ was not adored and obeyed. What a shame that would be. Think of the tragedy. Now think of the triumph. The triumph of Grace Community Church where Jesus reigns as supreme over all. A church that gladly trembles in fear and they obey Jesus as supreme. A church that is passionately in love with their Savior. A deep burning love that calls them to pour forth worship. A church that loves the Bible. Not just because of intellectual, educational reasons, but they they love the Bible. Why? Because the words of Jesus are there and He's supreme. A church that loves to come together, and not just out of tradition, but loves to come together. Why? Because Christ Jesus is worshipped there as supreme. This will be a great triumph if Christ reigns supreme. This is what I want to stir up today. And I want to stir this up through walking through Revelation chapter 1. And then we'll kind of peek our head into Revelation chapter 2. If you read Revelation chapter 1, what you have revealed in Revelation, what you have revealed here is in the first chapter, the supremacy of Christ. He is supreme over all. He's first. He's he's most important. He is superior in all things. And you see this in chapter 1. And in chapter 2 and chapter 3 of Revelation, you see the churches. He begins to, to 
speak to the churches directly, these different specific churches, and you see how churches should respond to the supremacy of Jesus. And this is what we're walking into. So Revelation chapter 1, if you're not already there, go ahead and turn there. Revelation chapter 1. I'm going to start, we're going to read verse 1 through 3 together, okay? Now, this is an introduction. These first three verses, they're an introduction to the book of Revelation. He's going to, he's going to begin to greet them in verse 4, but these first three verses are like an introduction into this book. Read it with me, verse 1. The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show his servants, things which must shortly take place, And he sent and signified it by his angel to his servant, John, who bore witness to the word of God and to the testimony of Jesus Christ, to all things that he saw. Blessed is he who reads and those who hear the words of this prophecy and keep those things which are written in it, for the time is near. Now, the first sentence here, first sentence of Revelation, it says the revelation of Jesus. Now, what is a revelation? A revelation is like an an unveiling. Something's hidden, but it's being exposed. It's a revelation. So it says here, the revelation of Jesus Christ. Now, in in what sense is this book a revelation of Jesus Christ? In what sense is it a revelation of Jesus? And I'll give you two senses. First of all, it's a revelation of Jesus because it was given to Jesus by God the Father to deliver to His servants. You see that in the first sentence? It was given from God the Father to Jesus' revelation to deliver to His servants. And you see that as you continue to read through Revelation as it goes out to His churches, to His servants, to His people. You see Jesus' role as the mediator here. God the Father gives to the God-man Jesus Christ to deliver out to His servants. So that's one sense in which is a revelation of Jesus Christ. Another way in which it is a a revelation of Jesus Christ is that it's all about Jesus. It reveals, revelation reveals Jesus. It reveals Him. It exposes Him and His glory. Now, if you you walk through this first chapter, and we're going to do that in just a minute, and we're just going to see what is revealed about Christ as you walk through this first chapter of Revelation, and we're going to see that He's supreme over all. He's supreme over all. In all things. Re- uh, recently, somebody sent me a documentary about a, uh, a great man of God revealing to me some things about a great man of God, Charles Spurgeon. And that's great and all. But, but what if I could get a revelation of Jesus Christ, the greatest man of all? And this is what we have here in Revelation. Now, after this, this first sentence in, in verse 1, right after this first sentence, as you keep reading, you see how Jesus, is, Jesus responds. God the Father gives to God the Son. He's delivering out to His servants. So what does He do? Through His angels, He delivers it to John, the Apostle John. And He tells John to write these things to send out to His servants, to the churches. And this is how, this is the response here, okay? Now already, even in these introductory sentences, these first three verses, you already see the supremacy of Jesus. And here's what you see. You see Him as the supreme man. He is the supreme man. Now, He's God. He's God, no doubt. But He is the supreme man. He's the mediator. You see it? God the Father delivers the message 
through Jesus Christ. No revelation comes to us. No knowledge, no wisdom comes to us except it be through Jesus Christ. Colossians says this, In Him are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. So is He supreme? Absolutely. You want wisdom, you want knowledge, you want revelation. You can't have it without Jesus Christ. He's supreme. He is the supreme Man, this is the revelation of Jesus Christ. He's the, he's the great high priest. You've got God, you've got man, and you've got the God-man, Jesus Christ. He's, he's the great high priest who intercedes on our behalf continually. Now, as you continue on through this introduction, the, first, uh, the, the next verse there, verse, or the last verse of it in verse 3, it just pronounces a blessing on this book. Blessed are those who read, those who hear, those who keep, the things, to those who obey the things that are in this book. So listen close as we continue on through Revelation chapter 1. There's a blessing on this book. Look at verse 4 through 8, okay? Verse 4 through 8, we're going to get a greeting. And it's like a triune greeting from, from John to these churches, okay? Listen to it, verse 4 through 8. John to the seven churches which are in Asia, grace to you and peace from him who is and who was and who is to come, and from the seven spirits who are before His throne. And from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn from the dead, and the ruler over the kings of the earth, to Him who loved us and washed us from our sins in His own blood, and has made us kings and priests to His God and Father, to Him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Behold, He is coming. With, he's coming with clouds, and every eye will see Him, even they who pierced Him. And all the tribes of the earth will mourn because of Him. Even so, amen. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end, says the Lord, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. Now, I want you to see, first of all, this, this greeting. So we've got this introduction. We see Jesus is the supreme man. All revelations come through Him. All wisdom, all knowledge comes through Him to us. And then in this greeting right here, you're going to see a triune greeting. You see in, in verse 4, He says, grace to you from Him who is and was and is to come. This is God the Father. He says, grace to you, peace from Him. And then He says, and from the seven spirits who, who are before His throne. This is a reference to the Holy Spirit of God. This is the Trinity we're going to see here. God the Father, and it says the seven spirits of God. Now, if you're wondering why does it say seven spirits, you can look back at later on at Isaiah chapter 11, verse 1 and 2, and you've got these uh, seven descriptions of the Spirit of God, and this is where this comes from. The point is the Spirit of God. God the Father, God the Spirit, and then as you keep reading, it says, and from Jesus Christ, God the Son. Now, I want you to notice, notice that in this triune greeting, we get a lot more details on God the Son. We get a lot more details on Jesus and more description about Jesus and who He is. This is a revelation of Jesus Christ, is it not? This is the revelation of Jesus Christ. So, what do we know about Christ from this greeting? Okay, What can we know about Jesus? What can we know about the supremacy of Jesus from this greeting? And here's a few things that we know, starting in verse 5. From Jesus Christ, the faithful witness... So we know the supremacy of His faithfulness. He's called in verse 5 the faithful witness. This means that He is trustworthy. He's reliable beyond anything human. He's trustworthy. Every word that He speaks, it comes to pass. Do you know that Jesus has never spoken a word that did not come true? 
You can rely on it. You can rest on it. Whatever He says comes to pass. Whatever He, he purposes, it, it comes about. You see this about Jesus. He's faithful to His Word. And not only is He faithful in His character, but He has the power to hold His Word. He has the power to keep His Word. You might have people here, there might be a man here who's faithful and, and reliable in their character. And yet they don't always have the power to fulfill their word. For example, I'll be there at 9 o'clock, car breaks down. What are you going to do? See, you don't have the power. And yet Christ, this kind of thing never happens to Him. He's absolutely faithful. He always keeps His word and nothing can ever stop Him from keeping His word. Psalm 89 calls the moon the faithful witness in the sky. Every night, think about it, every night, you never doubt it, the moon's just there. It's just always there every night. You never wonder. I wonder if it's going to be there tonight. The moon's just there, right? It's the faithful witness in the sky, always there. And let me tell you this. The moon will fail your expectations before the Son of God will. He is the faithful witness, supremely faithful above all else. And I want you to think about this. These churches that he's writing to, okay? Now, now we're obviously reading this today. Okay, this is to, to all of us, but these even these specific churches that he's writing to in Revelation, I want you to think through what they're going through. They're going through hell on earth as you read through Revelation chapter 2 and Revelation chapter 3. You see they're going through deep poverty. They're going through tribulation in the synagogue of Satan. They're thrown in prison by the devil. They're, they're, they're under pending executions. Their dear friends like Antipas, the faithful martyrs, being killed before their eyes. Their strength is being zapped from their bodies and from their minds. And they need to know Jesus as that faithful witness. He is the faithful one. They might have questions to their mind. Is he really going to return from us like he said he would? Is, is he really going to return to us? Is he really going to deliver us like he said that he would? And they need to know that he's the faithful one who said, I'll never leave you. I'll never forsake you. I will return again and receive you to myself. He's the faithful witness. What else do we know about him? We know the supremacy of His resurrection. You see this in the phrase in verse 5. Look at it in verse 5. He is the firstborn from the dead. This verse shows us the supremacy of His resurrection. He is the firstborn from the dead. So listen to me. Listen to me. There's a time when all people will come out of the graves. They will all rise from the dead. The wicked to eternal damnation and the righteous to eternal life. And of those who are raised from the dead, there's one. Of those raised to life, there's one called the faithful, excuse me, the firstborn from the dead. There's one called the firstborn from the dead. Now this term firstborn, it doesn't communicate with us as well as it would have with maybe the people that originally read it. Here's why. We don't have this concept in our culture of firstborn. A firstborn son that has prominence, that gets the inheritance, that's of most importance. We don't have this kind of thing in our culture. When I think of my firstborn Samuel, I don't think of him of having any more inheritance or any more importance than I do my secondborn. You understand? We don't have that in our culture. But in this culture, the firstborn was less about. It wasn't necessarily about chronological order, although that often determined it. But it wasn't just about chronological order, but about status. The firstborn had the inheritance. The firstborn was the possessor. The firstborn was the owner. You see this? So for example, you read uh, Exodus chapter 4. God looks, He looks at the people of Israel and He says, this, this is my firstborn. He's talking about the nation of Israel. And God calls the nation of Israel His firstborn. 
Now, obviously, they weren't the first nation chronologically, right? But what were they? They were promised in his eyes. He was the firstborn. This is the possessor, the inheritor, the owner, okay? And here's what I want you to see. This means that he is the firstborn from the dead. That means out of all those raised from the dead, it's going to be obvious who the firstborn is. Don't you see that? All other resurrections, when, we, when our bodies are raised up, there'll be glorified bodies in heaven. And, and when we have these glorified bodies in heaven, there will be one that stands different than all. He's the firstborn from the dead. Think about Daniel chapter 12. I think it's Daniel 12 too. If you read this verse, it says, we all in heaven, it says, all those who are wise are going to shine like the brightness of the firmament. And those who, call, those who turn many to righteousness will shine like the stars forever and ever. And that's going to be awesome to see that glorified in heaven. And yet you've got the firstborn from the dead, the resurrected one, and he's going to shine so bright that it makes our star shining look like a little flickering candle. It's going to be awesome. He's the firstborn from the dead. He's supreme in his resurrection. You can even read in John eleven twenty five, 25, and Jesus doesn't beat around the bush. What does he say? He says, I am. Think about it. Millions. Millions are going to rise from the dead and go to eternal hell. And millions are going to rise from the dead and go to eternal life. And he says, he just sums it all up. He says, I am the resurrection. I am the resurrection and the life. He's the firstborn from the dead. We also know the supremacy of His authority. The supremacy of Jesus' authority. Look at the phrase in verse 5. He is the ruler over the kings of the earth. He's the ruler over the kings of the earth. All the kings of the earth actually have a ruler. You realize that, right? Whether they believe it or not. Whether they like it or not. They actually have a ruler. Jesus is king of all kings. He's Lord of all lords. He's the ruler over the kings of the earth. I want you to think about it. Satan came to Jesus when Jesus was about 30 years old. Satan came to Jesus. He said, so these kingdoms, I'll give you all these kingdoms if you bow down and worship me. Satan said that to Jesus. I'll I'll give you all these, you have all these kingdoms if you'll bow down and worship me. And he had this offered up to him. And I want you to think about it. It's as if Jesus spit on his plan. And he went by his own merit through his death and burial and resurrection. And Jesus, in his own merit, takes these kingdoms to himself, rises as king, and destroys the one who wanted to be worshipped. He's the ruler over all the kings of the earth. Now notice that it doesn't say just the good kings. Did you see it did not say the good kings? He says not just the good kings. He's the ruler over even the wicked kings on this earth. The heart, of, the heart of the king's in the hand of the Lord. Like the river of water, he turns it wherever he wishes. Every dictator, every leader on this earth is under the sovereign authority of King Jesus. King Jong-un, under the supreme authority of Jesus, and he will bow down to him. Barack Obama is under the supreme authority of Jesus and will bow down to him. Vladimir Putin, under the supreme authority of Jesus, will bow down to him. And the list goes on and on and on and on. The supremacy of Jesus' authority. Let's worship Him for this. Also, we know the supremacy of His love. Look at verse 5 and 6. We know the supremacy of His love. To Him who loved us and washed us from our sins in His own blood and has made us kings and priests to His God and Father. Now don't you love this? It's like you read the greeting and He describes the Father. He said the one who was and is and is to come. And he describes the Holy Spirit as the seven spirits of God before the throne of God. And then he begins to describe Jesus as that faithful witness. 
He describes him as the, the ruler of the kings of the earth, the firstborn from the dead. And then it's like he just explodes in praise to him who loved us. And he just begins to praise King Jesus. Jesus' love is supreme above any love that you have ever known. Any love that you have ever imagined, Jesus' love is supreme. Now somebody here might say, Ron, you don't understand. You don't understand this love that I have for this baby. This little baby, this little newborn infant. You don't understand, Ryan, this love that I have for this baby. And listen, here's what I do know. That, that your love for that baby does not hold a candlestick to Christ's love for us. It's not even close. His love is supreme above all things. I want you to think about it like this. We all, when a friend dies for a friend, when a friend lays down his life for a friend, we honor that as love. But what about, what about when someone looks at a wicked, sinful enemy of his and lays down his life for that one? And this is exactly what Jesus did. He looks to us as his enemies, as the wicked ones as the ones who hated Him, as, as haters of God, hell-bound haters of God is who we were. And He looks on us in that state and He loves us. And He lays down, he lays down His life for us. Amazing love is what the hymn says. Amazing love. How can it be that Christ my, my Savior would die for me? Now, think about it like this. This verse just said, Now to Him who loved us and washed us from our sins in His own blood. Okay? Now, the love came first, right? He loved us. He didn't clean us up. and then He loved us and washed us from our sins. Almost. He loved us when we were saved. He loved us, okay? Now, if He would have done that and, and, and washed us clean and delivered us from hell and then found a way that we could just be obliterated into nothingness, we still would praise Him, right? We don't have to go to eternity in hell. This is awesome. He died on the cross for our sins and we would praise Him. And yet He takes it a step further in this verse and what does He say? And He's made us a kingdom. Priest to His God and Father. Not only, not only has He died for us, laid down His life for us and delivered us from hell, but He's actually taken a step further and He draws us in close to the source of infinite joy and He brings us in close to Him and we get to dwell with Him forever and ever and ever as His priest. This is awesome. This is the supremacy of His love. We also know the supremacy of Jesus' glory. Look at the last phrase in verse 6. To Him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Did you hear it? To Jesus be glory. How long? Forever. Forever and ever. To Jesus be glory. Think about man's glory. Let's compare this to man's glory. The Scripture says, man is like grass. And the glory of man is like the flower of the grass. And maybe it drew you in and you thought that was a good thing. And then the next phrase says, grass withers. And it's flower. You know, the glory of man, it's flower fades. But guess what this verse just said? To Him be glory forever and ever and ever and ever and ever. Man, a man might do something and he gets applause. Maybe he did something praiseworthy. And he gets applause for a time. But that applause is going to fade away. You know that, right? It's just going to fade away. But Christ Jesus, He's worthy of worship for all of eternity. And it, 
It, our worship to Jesus in eternity will never turn into this ritualistic, cold, going through the motions type thing. You know why? Because we'll see Him as He is. And when we see Him in His glory, we with white hot worship will worship Him for all of eternity. His glory is forever and ever and ever. His glory is supreme above all else. The supremacy of His glory. We also know the supremacy of His second coming. Look at verse 7. Look, read verse 7 with me. The supremacy of His second coming. Behold, He is coming is with clouds and every eye will see Him. Even they who pierced Him and all the tribes of the earth will mourn because of Him. Even so, Amen. So one day He's coming back with great power and glory. He's coming back with great power and glory. This said, every eye is going to be glued on Him. He's supreme in His second coming. Every eye will be on Him. The the Jewish nation that crucified Him all the way to the tribes that are going to be mourning and some of those tribes are a group, a remnant from those tribes will be rejoicing as well. So in His second coming, He's supreme. It says He comes back with power and glory. And as He comes back, there's going to be a remnant of people from every nation, tribe, and tongue that, that are enthralled with Him. It says they're going to marvel at Him. They're going to worship Him. They're going to rejoice because their Savior has come to take them home. And I also want you to notice that this verse just said, all the tribes of earth will what? Mourn. What's that all about? Christ returns and all the tribes of the earth will mourn. What we see here is the supremacy of His wrath. We see the supremacy of His wrath. There's a day where His wrath is going to explode on this earth like a bomb. And it's going to be so terrible that there's going to be people saying, let the rocks and let them just, the mountains of rocks just follow me and crush me rather than have to face the wrath of the Lamb. He's supreme in His wrath. He's supreme in His second coming. He's supreme in all things. And we should worship Him for it. We also see Him here in verse 8. The supremacy of His deity and the supremacy of His eternality. Look at, look at verse 8 with me. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end, says the Lord, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. So He calls Himself the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. Alpha and Omega, you, most of you know this is the first and last letter of the Greek alphabet. So He's saying, I'm A to Z. I'm I'm. Alpha, Omega. It's the same meaning as I'm the beginning and I'm the end. In other words, I'm not just a mere man. I'm God. And I love this in verse 8 because you got John writes his introduction to the churches and it's like Jesus breaks in on them and gives his own introduction and says, I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. I am the Almighty who is and was and is to come. He, everything that is created from angels to men to animals to everything in nature fits somewhere between A to Z, somewhere between Alpha and Omega, but not Jesus. He created all things. All things were created by him. And get this, all things were created, according to Colossians 1.16, for him. This was about him. Everything was even created for him. He is the creator, God, the God man, and he's awesome. Now, His eternality. Listen to John Piper on his eternality. The supremacy of his eternality that makes the mind of man explode with the unsearchable thought that Christ never had a beginning, but simply always was. Sheer, absolute reality while all the universe is fragile, contingent, like a shadow by comparison to his all-defining, ever-existing substance. 
This is awesome. He's eternal. He has no beginning. He doesn't have a beginning. He is the beginning. This is Christ Jesus. It goes on to say in that same passage, who is and who was and who is to come, meaning He's equal with God the Father. Earlier in this chapter, what did they say about God the Father? Who is and who was and who is to come. And now Jesus says about Himself, who is and who was and who is to come. He is the Almighty, the One with all power, all strength. No one can stop Him. No one can stay His hand. And we should praise Him for the supremacy of His deity and His eternality. Now you get to verse 9. Revelation chapter 1, verse 9. And here's what you're going to see. Verse 9 through 20. Now you're going to see John is going to meet the glorified Jesus. We're about to, we're about to get a little rundown, okay? Of how, how did this get delivered to John? Okay, this revelation of God, the revelation of Jesus Christ has come to Jesus to take out to all of His servants. How's He going to get it to John? And what you're going to see here is He's going to speak. And John is going to hear this powerful voice. And he's going to be moved. And then he's going to turn to see the one that speaks to him. And when he turns and sees this one, it's going to be so much glory that he falls on his face as if dead. And the Lord Jesus is going to command him some things. This is awesome, okay? Now we're not going to read. Let's start off. Let's let's read verse 9 through 11 starting off. How about that? Verse 9 through 11. This is where John hears Jesus' voice. Listen. I, John, both your brother and companion in the tribulation and kingdom and patience of Jesus Christ was on the island of Patmos, called Patmos for the word of God and for the testimony of Jesus Christ. You got John, John on the island of Patmos. I was in the spirit on the Lord's day and I heard behind me a loud voice as of a trumpet saying, I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last. And what you see, write in a book and send it to the seven churches which are in Asia, to Ephesus, to Smyrna, to Pergamos, to Thyatira, to Sardis, to Philadelphia, and to Laodicea. So he hears this loud voice behind him. And here's what I want you to see. I want you to hear the supremacy of Jesus' voice. He hears the voice of Jesus. It says, a loud voice, like a trumpet. And I want you to hear in that the supremacy of the voice of Jesus. His voice is packed with power. This is the voice that said, let there be and solar systems flung into existence. This is the voice that said, come forth and a man dead for four days comes walking out of a grave. It's the same voice that said, be still and the megastorm just shut its mouth in a moment. This is the voice of Jesus. Listen to Psalm 29. The voice of the Lord is powerful. Psalm 29, the voice of the Lord is full of majesty. The voice of the Lord breaks the cedars. The voice of the Lord divides the flames of fire. The voice of the Lord shakes the wilderness. This is the voice that's going to come back one day and the voice is going to speak. And according to John 5, all those who are in the grave, this is all over the earth. Think of the power of this voice. All those all over the earth are going to hear His voice and come forth. This is the power of Of the voice of Jesus. Let me ask you this quickly. Does it comfort you to know that this is the voice? If you're here and you're born again, this is the voice that spoke on your behalf. Justified. This is that voice. He spoke on your behalf. This is the reason that that verse in Romans 8 that says, it's God who justifies. Who is He who condemns? This is why it's so powerful. Every other voice is just like a petty little squeak compared to this voice, this powerful voice of Jesus that looked at you who are born again and said, justified, righteous. 
Does this challenge you? When you think about the power of the voice of Jesus, does it challenge you to know that you believe that these words are, are contain that voice? Does that challenge you? Does your devotion to this book show the supremacy of the voice of Jesus? What will you do with this book? Look at verse 12 through 16. Then now what happens? John's going to turn and he's going to see the glorified Jesus. Verse 12. Then I turned to see the voice that spoke with me. And having turned, I saw seven golden lampstands. And in the midst of the seven golden lampstands, one like the Son of Man, clothed with a garment down to the feet and girded about the chest with a golden band. His head and hair were white like wool, as white as snow, and his eyes like a flame of fire. His feet were like fine brass, as if refined in a furnace, and his voice as the sound of many waters. He had in his right hand seven stars, out of his mouth went a sharp two-edged sword, and his countenance was like the sun shining in its strength. Ooh. So John turns and he sees lampstands. Now, if you read verse 20 of the same chapter, Jesus explains that the lampstands are the churches. The lampstands are the churches, which is a fitting symbol for the church, right? We're not the light in and of ourselves, but we uphold the light like a lampstand with this flame on it. We uphold the light. The lampstands are the churches. And then it says that John sees in the midst of those churches one like the Son of Man. He sees one. One that's going to make him fall on his face as if dead. And this is a glorious thought that that one is, is where? He sees in the midst of the churches, in the midst of the lampstands. You got this Christ. Jesus the Christ, the powerful one, the almighty one, the Alpha and the Omega. And he says he walks in the midst of the lampstands. He walks in the midst of his church. And this is a glorious, glorious thought. And then you get this description. Okay, and what we're going to see here is the supreme. We're talking about the supremacy of Christ. Many men will be glorified, but this is the supreme glorified man. This is the supreme glorified man. And you get a little taste of what you're going to see. You're really going to see him one day if you're here and you're in Christ Jesus. You're going to see this one. God is invisible, yet He took on flesh, and now we're really going to see the God-man one day. And here's a little taste of it. It calls Him the Son of Man. This is a reference back to Daniel chapter 7, verse 13 and 14, when it said the Son of Man walked up to the Ancient of Days, and to Him was given a kingdom and a dominion, and His kingdom would never end. So here's this eternal King who has a kingdom that will never, ever end. And then it says He's clothed in what? He's clothed with a garment down to his feet, girded about the chest with a golden band. Can you see it? John had seen this Jesus in slave clothes and bending down and washing the feet of his disciples. This is what John had seen. And now what does John see? He sees this royal robe, this one clothed like a conqueror, clothed like a king, clothed in majesty with a robe down to the floor and a golden band around his chest. It said his head and hair were white like wool, as white as snow, his eyes like a flame of fire. He's got this symbol on his head of absolute purity. There's no defilement in this man. None. Absolute purity. And his eyes are like a flame of fire. They burn with rage towards the wicked, and they burn with love toward the righteous. And his eyes like a flame of fire. It says his, his feet like fine brass, as if refined in a furnace, and his voice as the sound of many water. John has seen this man's feet. 
John had seen his feet pierced through. They pierced his hands and his feet. They saw his feet pierced through and bleeding. And now he says, man, they're glowing like, they're just glowing like bronze right now. This is what he's seeing when he sees King Jesus. And then he says his voice is already said it's like a trumpet. Now it's like the sound of many waters. You got the voice of Jesus like the sound of Niagara Falls. It's powerful. It's powerful. He had in his right hand seven stars. Out of his mouth went a sharp two-edged sword, and his countenance was like the sun shining in its strength. Now this would have been an amazing vision of the resurrected, glorified Jesus. He's holding stars in his hands. Now if you read verse 20, those stars represent the angels to the churches. But listen, what a vision. He's holding stars in his hands. This is your Savior. This is different than the pictures we often see on the walls, isn't it? He's holding stars in his hands. It says, and it says out of his mouth goes a sharp two-edged sword. This is the word of God. The word of God is living and powerful, sharper than any two-edged sword. He doesn't have to walk to his enemies with an actual sword in his hand. He just speaks a word and they fall. His face shining like the sun. No wonder, no wonder, no wonder when you see this picture of these angels and the four living creatures and they're seeing King Jesus and Isaiah too and they're covering themselves. His face is shining like the sun. You ever looked into the sun before? And it's shining like the sun. No wonder they cover themselves and they say, Holy, 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 Lord God Almighty. And one day, listen, <laughs> we're going to see this one. We get to see the glorified Savior. He's a supreme glorified man. When we get there, nobody's going to be asking. Nobody's going to say, where's he at? He's there. You're going to know the firstborn from the dead. You'll see him and you'll know him. Now this is a powerful, awe-inspiring sight that he sees. Okay, This is what John sees. He sees it. And if you look at verse 17 with me, look at what he does. And when I saw him, I, I fell at his feet as dead. He's so overwhelmed with the glory of Jesus, that He just falls down. He gets still. He gets quiet. His body probably quakes. He's in the presence of Jesus. He's in the presence of Jesus. And Jesus responds. Don't you think about it? So here's John. Falling his face as if dead. Trembling before Jesus as He sees His glory. And how does Jesus respond? And as we look how Jesus responds, we're going to see the supremacy of Jesus' gentleness. The supremacy of His gentleness. Look at the rest of the verse. Verse 17. But He laid His right hand on me, saying to me, Do not be afraid. I'm the first and the last. (laughs) Can you see the gentleness of Jesus? The One who holds the seven stars in His hand puts them down and reaches out that hand with love to touch this One who's fallen down on His face as if dead. And the same voice that rumbles like Niagara Falls whispers, don't be afraid. This is the gentleness of Jesus. Okay, How can He do this? How can He hold supremacy and power, supremacy and authority, supremacy and wrath, and at the same time, He's supreme in His gentleness, His lowliness. He's the lion and He's the lamb. He's the lion and He's the lamb. The feeling, I've mentioned this before, but i got to say it again. The, the, the feeling that we're going to have, I, can't, I obviously can't describe it, 
But the feeling that we're going to have when we have this interaction and we see Jesus face to face, the Supreme One, it's going to be like nothing you've, you've ever experienced before. Imagine, you're trembling. You've never been this terrified before. Scared to death. Trembling before the Majestic One. And at the same time, you feel absolutely safe in His gentleness. At the exact same time. You're going to rejoice with trembling. All right. As we continue on to verse 18, we're going to see the supremacy of His gospel. Look at verse 18. I am He who lives. Remember, He's still got His hand with love touching, touching John. And He's already spoken to him, said, don't be afraid. And He continues on and says, I am He who lives and was dead. And behold, I'm alive forevermore. He could have said anything to John right here. Anything. He's got his full attention, right? He's got John's attention. He could say anything to John right here. And he says, I was dead. The Almighty One that I'm describing to you had died, and now He's alive forevermore. He mentions His death and His resurrection. Now, He doesn't speak of His death with shame as though it was some sort of weak moment in his life and he accidentally died. This is not what he done. He speaks of his death like it's victorious, like it's triumphant. And he speaks to John and says, I'm he who lives and I was dead. I was dead. You see this? Why would he speak of his death with triumph? Why would he speak of his death as a comfort in the ear of John? Why would he do that? Because at the cross, we see Jesus' love. He looks on these sinful people, these hell-bound haters of God, and He looks on them with love, and we see that at the cross. And also at the cross, we see that God, when He looks on these sinners, He's the perfect, righteous, just One that will not let sinners go free. He will not sweep your sin under the rug. And at the cross, we see both sides of Jesus. And so at the cross, ultimately, we see the indescribable love of Jesus as He lays down His life. Do we deserve wrath from God? Absolutely. But Christ came and took it. He took the punishment. He took the wrath. He took the death for you and for me. He laid down His life. And so His death is a triumph of His love and a triumph of His righteousness. This is the supremacy of the gospel of Jesus. There's no message like this on earth. There's no, you can't find a message this great on earth. And lastly, we're going to see the supremacy of his, his, excuse me, his supremacy over death. His supremacy over death. The last phrase in verse 18. And I have the keys of Hades and of death. I have the keys. Everybody's got to face death. It's that... It's that uh, relenting, undefeatable enemy, right? Everybody has got to face death. And humans are enslaved to a fear of death. But listen to what Jesus, listen to what Jesus did. He Himself shared in flesh and blood that through death, that's through His death, this is Hebrews 2, through death He might destroy Him who had the power of death, that is the devil, and release Release those who through fear of death were all their lifetime subject to bondage. Jesus has the keys to death and the grave. And according to 1 Corinthians 15, He's going to destroy all His enemies because He's supreme and the last enemy that will be destroyed is death. And then He's going to mock death. Oh, death, where's your sting? 
Oh grave, where is your victory? He's going to mock it to its face. Jesus reigns supreme over death. And for every person, every person who comes to Jesus in faith, delivered. You come to Christ Jesus in faith, the one who defeated death, and you're delivered from hell. You're delivered from it. Now, we're toward the end of Revelation 1. As you continue through chapter 1, you're going to see Jesus look at John and say, now write, he's going to remind him again, write these things. He kept having to tell him all through Revelation, write these things. He's just mesmerized. <laughs> he forgets to write, okay? So he keeps telling him, write these things. So he's telling him, write these things down. Then he explains some of the, the symbolism in verse 20. And you see that, right? And then in the next two chapters, chapter 2 and chapter 3, you get these direct, these direct, uh, where he speaks directly to seven churches in Asia. Okay? Now we could go to every one of them and we can learn something about how we as a church, Grace Community Church, how should we respond to the supremacy of Jesus in the church? And we can learn from every one of those churches about that. But I just want to I just want to look at the first seven verses, chapter two, verse one through seven. I want to focus our attention on the church at Ephesus. Okay? Chapter two, verse one through seven. Now, many of you know this passage. Okay, you've read this passage often about the church at Ephesus, first seven verses. And you know that this is a church that was commended for many good things that it had done. In many good ways that it was walking. And then it was reprimanded for that famous line in verse 4, you have left your first love. This is that church. Jesus commends them, but then He looks at them and says, listen, you, I've got this against you. And, and look, people can have stuff against our church all day long, but when Jesus says, I have something against you, and He pinpoints something, you better listen up. And right here He says, you left your first love to the church at Ephesus. Now, here's why I want to focus on this church, okay? That this particular, you know, we've got seven churches to pick from. Why do I choose the church at Ephesus? And I'll take, give you a couple reasons. One, I have a great fear. I have a great fear of this in Grace Community Church. A great fear, okay? We are a church, okay? Or, or I have a fear that we would be a church commendable in many, many things just like them and yet be, have lovelessness. Just not have this first love for Christ, the person of Christ, not the idea, not any, but just Jesus Himself. I have a great fear that this is something we would fall to. That's one reason. Second reason is this. Our subject is the supremacy of Jesus and the church. And there's nothing, there's nothing that pushes up Christ. It's reigning as supreme in a church except when a group of people love Him with deep passion. I mean, they just love Him. It's just burning in them this love they have for Christ and nothing shows Him supreme like that does. Listen to this quote from A.W. Tozer. Now this is A.W. Tozer talking about one of his heroes in the faith. Listen to what he says. His love for the person of Christ was so intense that it threatened to consume him. It burned within him as a sweet and holy madness and flowed from his lips like molten gold. In one of his sermons, he said, wherever we turn in the church of God, there's Jesus. He is the beginning, middle, and end of everything to us. 
There's nothing good, nothing holy, nothing beautiful, nothing joyous, which He is not to His servants. No one need be downcast, for Jesus is the joy of heaven, and it is His joy to enter into sorrowful hearts. We can exaggerate about many things, but we can never exaggerate our obligation to Jesus or the compassionate abundance of the love Jesus has for us. All our lives... All our lives long, we might talk of Jesus, and yet we should never come to an end of the sweet things that might be said of Him. Now imagine Grace Community Church, full of people. Coldness has been destroyed, and a people that love Christ like that. It burns with an intensity. Like this was just, like this quote I just read to you. Now let's look at this church very quickly. First thing I want you to notice about the church at Ephesus. I want you to notice the, the visible, the external, visible state of the church. In other, in other words, what could you see? If you moved to Ephesus and you showed up at their meetings, what would you see about the church at Ephesus? What's the visible state? Look at verse 1 through 3. To the angel of the church of Ephesus write, These things says he who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks in the midst of of the seven golden lampstands. I know, he looks at me and says, I know your works. He says this to all the churches, by the way. Jesus knows. You understand that? I can only give so much of a, of a uh, uh, here's where we are as a church, but Christ knows all. And he says that to every church. I know your works, your labor, and your patience. And, and you cannot bear those who are evil. And you have tested those who say they're apostles and are not and have found them liars. And you have persevered and have patience and have labored for my namesake and have not become weary. Okay, so far it looks great, right? It's a great church. They have labors. They're working for God. They're working for His namesake. In fact, it says they can't bear those who are evil. This is moral purity in them. They can't bear evil in their midst. It's moral purity, moral uprightness. And then there's people coming in and saying they're apostles and they're not. And these, this church found them to be liars. These people are doctrinally sound. Doctrinally sound, morally upright, laboring for His namesake, not growing weary, it says. Not to mention this. Who are the leadership in the church at Ephesus? For three years they had Paul the Apostle. Man, that's, that's great. They had, they had uh, uh, Priscilla and Aquila and Apollos ministering there. That's awesome, right? They had Timothy there. You read First Timothy. Timothy was there in leadership for a time. And according to church history, John the Apostle, who's translating this message here, was actually there for a time. I mean, they had some pretty high leadership, right? Pretty stout leadership. And here's this church, morally pure, doctrinally sound. This seems like a good thing. Now, why am I telling you this? Because I don't want you to miss this. I don't want you to miss the warning that's given here about losing your first love. And that's why I'm telling you how great this church looks on the outside. Don't you see how great this looks? If we stopped here, you'd walk away and say, sign me up. I want to be a part of this church. We are... Grace Community Church has a reputation, okay, that we are morally upright and we are doctrinally sound. But, but listen, that reputation is nothing if we don't love the Lord Jesus Christ. It's nothing. We need to search our hearts. Do we love Jesus? Do we really love Jesus? Look at, look at the internal state here, okay? Verse 4, look at the internal state. Nevertheless, 
I have this against you, that you have left your first love. This is a big deal. There's a lot of things I can't do. Lots of things I can't do. And I'll give you one of them. I can't make us as a church just... I can't do that internal thing. Where there's just love, this burning love. I can't do it. You know, doctrinally, I can, I can you know, maybe print out a bunch of sheets and have, you know, give it to everybody at their house, do tests. Mike could do that. <laughs> but what about this love for Jesus? What about this? They left their first love. And man, I long for this. I don't know about y'all, but I, I long for a church. Okay? I mean, even, even members of our church that aren't even here today, I long for God to do such a work and He begins to just reveal Himself as so glorious that we love Christ with an intensity that cannot be described. You can't replace this and you can't manufacture it. I want us to be a people that love Christ. And here it says, they left their first love and it was a, it was a big deal to Jesus, okay? So think about what this means. Their affections for Christ, down. Their love had grown cold. Coldness towards Christ is the idea here. Real joy in Christ, desire for Jesus had long departed. They knew nothing. They knew nothing of the affections of that woman. You know that woman who was standing at Jesus' feet and tears rolling down her face, hitting His feet, and he, she was wiping His feet with her hair. You remember that? And Jesus said, she loved much. That's, that's the testimony of her. She loved much and they knew nothing of these affections. At least not since the beginning. They knew doctrine about Christ. Just let it sit. They knew doctrine about Christ, but they missed love for Jesus. Listen, listen to Charles Spurgeon. He said this, When love dies, orthodox doctrine becomes a corpse and a powerless formalism. When love dies. They towed the line doing what was right, but they missed the affections for Christ. Now I've been asking people this. I've been asking, I've been reading this verse to people. Some of you have heard this, and I've been saying, okay, this church left their first love. And I've been asking the question, can you relate with this? Can you relate with this? Okay? And most people told me, yes, I can relate with this. And I said, okay, since you can relate with this, talk to me. Tell me, you know, what are things you when you think of first love, when you think of the love of Christ that you once had that you have now left, when you think about that, what kind of things come to your mind? What kind of you know, events of your life or things that you did or things that you're about, what comes to your mind? And as I've asked people this, I've heard some awesome things. I heard, uh, I wrote down a few here. I heard uh, Steph, Steph telling me with tears in her eyes, telling me that, that she remembers just this careless love. Uh, she didn't have to be overly prepared to go share the gospel with her friends. She was just bowling over with it. Or, or Nick telling me about just, uh, just, he couldn't get enough for the Bible. He's just through every meal. He's just like reading the Word and like eating. Like he didn't want to take a break for eating, so he just reads the Bible. This is love for the Word of God, love for Christ, okay? I heard a pastor in San Antonio said that with every, every break he would get, he didn't know any better, but every break he would get, he'd go get him a Subway and a Mountain Dew and he'd take it and he'd take the Lord's Supper by himself. <laughs> now you say, well, that's not the Lord's Supper. Look, he didn't know any better. It's his first love. But man, he just wanted to be with Christ. And he's just with Jesus, communing with Jesus. This is what he wanted above all else. Others spoke of times that... Every time they speak of this righteousness that they have in Christ, the tears just come. They couldn't help it. 
I remember, I remember a time, and I've told some of you this, I remember a time being in Starkville. This is something that comes to my mind. I remember a time being in Starkville, okay, when I, got, I was saved, and three months later I was living in Starkville. And I was there, and I remember a time being on my face in my bedroom. And, I, you know, doctrinally, theologically, I mean, come on, man, I, I just couldn't been saved recently. And I'm on my face, and tears just coming down my face because, and the reason is because I, I read this verse that said that, that the prayers of the upright are His delight. And I thought, man, I'm, I get to bring delight to Jesus. I get to pray to Him right now, and He's going to like it, okay? And I'm just excited, and I'm on my face, and I begin to ask Him, Lord, I want to see You. And I didn't mean like see Your glory, you know, truth and see your glory i didn't mean that i mean i want to see you like john just saw him i didn't know what i was asking for god I want, jesus i just want to see you i want to see you lord god let me see you i just want to see you i don't know what to pray but i just want to see you i just remember first love just pouring out of me i want to see you lord and i i opened my eyes slowly because i thought i was about to see the feet of jesus now all kind of stuff you know off about that right but there's a lot right about that. I love Christ. And what about you? What do you think about? What do you think about first love? What comes to your mind? You know? I, I remember taking, I didn't know any Christian songs. I remember taking these old worldly songs, Hank Jr. songs, and singing them to Jesus. Hey Jesus, I love you. Hey Jesus, I need you. First love. What comes to your mind? Now let me draw your attention real quick to the seriousness of this situation. This is very serious for the church at Ephesus and very possibly very serious for us. Listen to verse 5. Remember therefore from where you have fallen, repent and do the first works or else I will come to you quickly and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. This is very serious. He just says remember and he says repent. This love grown cold is a sin to be repented of. Do you see that? We, it's not okay for us to perpetually move towards coldness in Christ. Love grown, grown cold is to be repented of, therefore it is a sin. Now he says this, he says, or else. In that passage I read, Jesus said, or else. I will come and I will remove your lampstand from its place. Now what's the place? And tell me this doesn't strike fear in your hearts. Tell me this does not strike fear in you. Listen, if you read chapter 1, verse 20, and chapter 2, verse 1, it says that Jesus walks in the midst of His lampstands. Where's the place? Where's the church's place? In the presence of Jesus. You got Jesus, you got His lampstands. The place of the church is in the presence of Jesus. And Jesus said, if you don't repent, if you don't repent, I'll remove your lampstand from its place. Still have organization, still have ministries, still have meetings. Presence of Jesus long departed. Oh, sad. It's sad. Nobody here wants that. It's a horrific, horrific thing. But listen to this. He says, repent. And if you do, listen. John 14, 21 says this. Jesus said, he who loves me. That'd be what would happen, right? If you repent, you your love's grown cold. Now you love Him. You love Christ. And if you repent, it says, He who loves me will be loved by my Father and I will manifest myself. I will reveal myself to them. John 14, 21. So what that just sound like? Your love's grown cold. I'll pull out. He says, but 
But you love me and I will reveal myself. And when I reveal myself, you'll love me more. And then I'll reveal myself more. And when I reveal myself, you'll love me more. And you, you, this will be awesome. <laughs> this is what I pray for us as a church. Work in our church. I'm asking God to work in our church this same intense love that we read in that quote just a moment ago. It, it said this. So intense it threatens to consume us. A love that burns within is a sweet and holy madness. Now I'm thankful. I'm going to close with this. I'm thankful that God is so long-suffering. Oh my goodness, He's so long-suffering, y'all. He, he has looked at when we've been cold and He's shown mercy and patience and He's long-suffering and He's not removed Himself and he, he just suffers long and He endures us even in our sin. And this is our Lord. He's so gracious. He's so merciful. But, and I'm, I praise God for that. But there also, there also has been times all throughout history where God's raised up churches, lampstands, that they burn with a passion for King Jesus. And so what we need to see, and I'll just close with this, if we see Christ as He is, if we see the supremacy of Jesus and He reigns supreme in this church in our affections and our, our study and everything, He is supreme. He's all in all. It's not just about a religious system, but this is about a person. This is about Christ. And when that happens in the church and we see His glory, we will burn with love for Him. So the pursuit is to do what? You need to see Him. Let's pray. Lord, thank You. Thank You for letting us look at Your Word. And I just pray, God, that You do this in us, God. Help us to see You, God, and let us burn with love for Your glory. Oh, God, do it. Do it for Your name. God, do it for Your namesake, Lord. For Your namesake and for Your glory, do this, Lord. God, we'll, we'll just, we will know how weak we were. And we'll just praise You, God. Grow us in our love for You, Lord. In Jesus' name. Amen.